Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode five of The Generalists. We have an excellent interview coming up with a relationship coach, Alicia Fisher. But before we get to that, I want to throw it off for some banter with The Generalists. Paul, Eli, Dave, how are you guys doing? Good. Good. Number five, five alive in OK, OK ju- juice. <laughs> Wait, what? Did you say five alive is only OK? It's a little too citrusy. <laughs> When's <laughs> the last like, time you had five alive? Does it even exist? I had it. I had it at golf camp. <laughs> and we know and you like haven't been there I for was 15 like, years. I, that's what I mean. It's been a while. <laughs> I'm a I'm a Kool-Aid jammers purist through and through. That's an awful take. My God. No, no, no. They're amazing. That that was like was, the use of being a child. That was it. I always thought the jammers were lacking a little bit. Like there was like one step further to be a little punchier. The Capri Suns were a little bit uh, punchier in my opinion. Yeah, that's fair. I think, yeah, they were a bit, they were a bit sweeter, I guess. No, but the it's, the Kool Aid is, you, you got it, and you're excited for it, and I agree with Dave because after the first few sips, you're like, "Hey, this sucks." Yeah, yeah. It's also wild that our parents like actually gave that to us to drink, thinking it was like vaguely healthy because I don't know, it was like colored the way fruits colored. I, I don't know what the logic <laughs> was there. Yeah, name me a, a fruit that's fluorescent blue. <laughs> you clearly haven't had a fluorescent blue apple <laughs> so uncultured no I, I never had that shit like i only got it when i went to friends houses juice in general is weird like was it always this kind of like you have it as a kid and then you grow up and then you don't have it like i don't have juice at all or is it just more recent where people are discovering oh it's really not good for you grape <laughs> juice is fucked I haven't seen the the existence of grape juice for at least 10 years. Like it's there, but it was like your world when you were younger and then it just kind of completely disappeared. Well, now it's I'm turned sure into it wine. It actually exists. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> grape juice was your world? It's not a world, but it's like... <laughs> there, it's I'm, just so sorry. I'm so sorry. The man, the man was raised on grape juice, all right? It, it wasn't that, it's just... There, have you ever seen like all these memes on the internet of people growing up and you're like, man, growing up, I thought, you know, quicksand was going to be a, like a bigger issue in my life. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I did think that. <laughs> because they warn you about quicksand. <laughs> yeah. Did they though? Or did everyone just watch that scene in the mummy where Winston got taken down by the quicksand? No one, no one actually watched the mummy besides you guys. I hate to tell you. <laughs> That's not true at all. You're wrong on that, my friend. <laughs> it's just those things in your childhood, like grape juice. It was like, oh yeah. And then now like people mentioned it growing up and, and talked about it. And now I haven't heard about grape juice in forever. Maybe it's, it's maybe it's like the, the Berenstein bears, you know, maybe it never oh, existed. And it's, and it's proof the Mandela of effect. <laughs> what is this Berenstein Bears thing again? I remember hearing about this, but I don't know what the hell it is. <laughs> it's It was a while back. It's this, um, and they have a term for it called the Mandela effect, where a bunch of people remember one thing one way, and then a bunch of people remember it the other way. Or like some people, the whole idea was that it's not Berenstein, it's Berenstain. And that when what? everybody looked back at the books, it's like, oh, it is Berenstain. But as a kid, you could have sworn it's Berenstein. Yeah, I reject that. It's, it's Berenstein. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Zach, it's a family of Jewish bears. Come on. 
Was this named after a famed NHL goaltender, Nelson Mandela? That's everybody. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Bernier reference for the fans out there. <laughs> that, that, it was it was actually named after Nelson Mandela, yeah. Like legit. But not yeah, the yeah, I, is there a goalie? I, I don't I don't know, but it was definitely named after Nelson Mandela because <laughs> at one point everybody thought he was dead and then he just had never actually died. And they're like, oh, I just, oh, I thought he like died at some point and uh, he wasn't dead. And that was the whole thing. And that's where like this whole effect started. That's incredible. Well, yeah. I guess after that guy screwed up the signing of his funeral now, oh, yeah. know he's, uh, he's very much dead, unfortunately. <laughs> it's, it's bizarre that there is, I've seen like a couple times in the news, people fake signing. I didn't know it was like an epidemic. Or just like there's just people like fake signing all the time. Wait, what? Like, why is it happening so frequently? It just doesn't feel very frequent. I just don't feel like you can get away with that anymore. Like people who sign watch the news. (laughs) I know it's bizarre, but people seem to be getting away with it quite frequently. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. What people sign fake death certificates? No, no, like like (laughs) sign language, and then people. Oh shit. Okay, okay. Now we're on the same page. Paul, were you, were you on, in my boat there? I had no idea what you guys were talking about. I, I thought it, yeah, I thought it had, might have had something to do with signing some kind of certificate. Yeah. As boat. usual, Dave and I are just on a higher plane. <laughs> be careful. Or we're going to be signing your death certificates. <laughs> what is it? What is it? <laughs> it's not even what it was about. <laughs> it was about sign language. You're just going to be signing at our funerals. <laughs> hey, we need a witness that this person's actually dead. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we have a, an amazing interview that Paul and I did with Alicia Fisher, and I wanted to get Dave and Eli's take on it because we actually haven't spoken to you yet about it. I'm assuming you've listened. Yep, yeah, no, listen to the whole thing. Uh, I thought you guys did an extremely good job for people who are not remotely qualified to talk about sex. I um, know <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a great listen. The, the stuff about like the porn consumption not having changed, you know, since we we're, I guess I shouldn't spoil it, but uh, it's she, she has some interesting thoughts that I guess go against some of the conventional wisdom that you'd think about, you know, with sexuality and the internet and everything like that. Uh, she's got some really good insights on on that whole phenomenon. I was gonna say that part surprised me as well. You just assume based off of how accessible it is, people would be you know consuming it at younger ages, but like crazy. It, the, yeah, what, kind of like the data she was talking about was crazy. Yeah, definitely. I'm surprised you guys haven't roasted me yet for sounding like an absolute virgin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to spoil it for our listeners but uh yeah they can keep keep an ear out for chris sounding like i don't know a, a seven-year-old maybe <laughs> like, i feel I, I feel like even younger maybe <laughs> if you listen to the podcast episode you'll find out that ontario sex education was recently revamped so a seven-year-old would do better than chris did actually <laughs> that's true that's an excellent point <laughs> that was and that was actually a really interesting part of it too just the the education for sex ed and everything like that i know we all went to catholic schools and just had absolutely terrible to non-existent sex ed mm-hmm. I, I was i was a big fan of the curriculum when that came out it's it's obviously needed yeah for sure and just listening to her it just goes to show you how much having the knowledge and 
you know, spreading the knowledge to other people. I don't know. Yeah, just how expertise, important it right? is. And, yeah. and you can easily see yeah. how someone who's passionate and expertise about a subject has a lot to share with, you know, different communities and, and society at large about their topic of interest. And it's, it's super fascinating. I learned a ton. It, it was a blast talking with her. Yeah, but there's some bad impacts on my on my life, guys, since uh, having her on the, the podcast. So Alicia's a massive fan of Lady Gaga. If we have her on again, we'll talk about that. But she spends the big VIP bucks to meet Lady Gaga when she comes to Toronto in concert. I think she's traveled to see Lady Gaga. She's met her but several times. The kind times. of bucks that we shell out for Weezer. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> You're keeping up a streak every episode. My God. Yeah, I have to bring it up every episode. This is a Weezer podcast. <laughs> but I noticed since since chatting with Alicia a few weeks ago, just setting up the podcast, catching up, my Facebook has been inundated. Every second post on the newsfeed is some Lady Gaga fan page. And I can't escape it. I think it's because I went into the, the privacy settings and I turned off the ability for Facebook to track me when I'm not on the website so that they're they're not able to tailor the ads or the you may like pages to my actual interests. So they're using anything they can. And the fact that they've seen me speak to Alicia, they're just blasting me with it. And I'm hiding every post saying, no, I don't want to see this. And it's done with <laughs> Lady Gaga now, but now it's like Britney Spears. They're just going through all of these pop stars. I, I can't stop it. It's insane. Zuck, Zuck that's crazy but it's it's kind of cool it's like you're you're kind of defeating the facebook ai robot it's short circuiting before it just uh implodes because it can't defeat you yeah color me skeptical i think that this is pretty convenient timing for you to use the her fandom as cover for something <laughs> going on with you here pretty damn convenient oh all these fan groups on facebook now following me uh, I've, these tickets to their concerts arrived at my door. <laughs> this, oh, someone tattooed me in the middle of the night. Britney Spears, Britney on my leg. This is, this is all too convenient. <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to doubt the uh, the algorithm, though, because I'm not kidding you. Right now, as we're recording this podcast, I was uh, got a notification on Facebook, and the sponsored ad right now is Grape Crush, which is some kind of... Holy um, no way. Some, some kind of wine company or something um and it, i mean they know i like wine i guess but i think i can only assume because we just had that riveting conversation about grape juice and they're they're now on to me dude the zuck's listening the zuck is listening and uh that's uh one of our 50 listeners thank you <laughs> <laughs> i i gotta say though first of all paul fuck you because i 100 percent would go to most of those concerts you tell that's me you point. wouldn't <laughs> Like maybe they they maybe you forgot to turn off the settings. Like I don't find it surprising that you're getting Lady Gaga stuff at all. Yeah. You, you talk about how much you love Katy Perry. You're a big pop fan. You know, what what's what's any what's different here? Yeah. yeah, that's fair. I just think the timing's weird because I actually do have a like a self-made female pop playlist uh, that I made on Spotify, and I I don't you know it's it's shameless. I don't give a shit. I, I don't go on incognito mode when I'm listening to it. I got some bangers on this. My God. Well, that's got to be why. That's got to be why the algorithm is is no, serving you up these. I created. Pop, pop, pop. I created this years ago, so why would it start now? I'm skeptical. 
Are, are any of the bangers that you put on your playlist over three minutes or is your attention span just get tired after? <laughs> no, they're all over three minutes, but there's none over five except Like a Prayer by Madonna. That's a, that's a banger. Well, that's <laughs> got to be the worst one on the entire playlist. Oh my God. It's <laughs> a bad take. Paul hates pop music. It's fucked. He hates Madonna. That's Yeah, that's the more yeah. accurate thing to say. She's the queen of pop. I'll do it. Hand, I'll say it. Hands up. I don't like Madonna. She's an idiot. <laughs> i don't care if her music's good she sucks that's okay but we're not Where talking about her come from I've i know it seems this. irrational well it's this not bizarre it's not that we're not we are talking about her her music is like fine but she's fucking terrible oh she's annoying. i don't know enough about her to, to have yeah, such a passionate hatred i don't have any strong madonna opinions one way or another yeah i do and i don't like her <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, next time we drive to Montreal, Madonna on loop. Oh, yeah, God. exactly. I'm driving us going... to a, I'm driving us into an, uh, <laughs> a post. If that <laughs> oh man, I was going through some of the old like Backstreet Boy music videos on YouTube. You just go down like that, like you know, the rabbit hole. Yeah, was this and, after uh, you listened to the interview with Alicia and the discussion about porn? <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, it was before, but it's, I don't know. It's a trip watching those old music videos. Like I, I hate to always bring it back to the quarantine, but there's something about watching those old nostalgic music videos. Like, Oh shit. Like life kind of feels different and it feels very different from back then. And I, I don't know. It's crazy. Do you guys uh, have a favorite Backstreet Boy? Mine was definitely Brian. I was a big Brian fan. I don't think I could pick any of them out of a police lineup. Honestly. Wait, you could definitely <laughs> pick the guy with the, with the hat and the little mustache. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, that fucking guy. Yeah. Was that Brian, Dave? Was that guy? No, Dave? he was kind of like he looked. I don't know. He was like the short Irishy looking guy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Yeah. You would pick out a guy with a fedora and like a pencil mustache any time out of a lineup, anyways, because he just looks like the most predatory one. <laughs> <laughs> but there was another That's guy true. in the Backstreet Boys. There was another guy in the Backstreet Boys that also had a bit of a goatee going on, right? They all, it was weird. It, yeah. The, it, I recommend going back because it's fun to look at just like how people were dressing back then. It feels like it's not that long ago, but they're still in like the, it looks like the old like baggy suits. Yeah. It is a um, long time ago. If you think of it, you know, go from the 80s to the 60s. That's a long ass time. Now we're going from 2021 to early 2000s. I know. Yeah. I try not to think about it, but yeah, they were still yeah. wearing like matching outfits and costumes for their music videos is it, it was a whole brand, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's ridiculous. The whole boy band era was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to get someone on the next podcast who is a boy band enthusiast and that'll change my algorithm completely. Hopefully. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we will take you to Alicia Fisher. It's a great interview. Can't wait to get people's feedback on it. I think it's going to inform a lot of people on things that you know, they didn't know, just like Eli and Dave said. So enjoy the next 40 minutes of Alicia Fisher. We are here with Alicia Fisher. Alicia is a international relationship coach and PhD student based out of Toronto, Ontario, and has been involved with the field of sexology and sexual violence for a decade. She works with individuals and people in relationships to enhance their intimate lifestyles and has spoken at conferences and led workshops worldwide. 
Her enthusiastic and trauma-informed approaches to discussing relationships and intimacy have been the driving force behind her work. And her unique and passionate approach is one of the many reasons that couples reach out to her for guidance. Alicia, welcome to The Generalist. We're uh, really happy that you've taken the time. Hi, I can tell. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, we're excited for this conversation. When we first started Eclectish, your name was right at the top of the list of people no that way. we needed to talk to. Yeah, yeah. Ask Paul when we were going through this and we were brainstorming about people we need to talk to. Yeah, you you came up. So we're really happy yeah. that that you're here with us. Awesome. I'm so happy to be here. It's, uh, you know, Chris and I did go to university together and uh, it's always just nice catching up. So I'm really happy to be here. I know. And it's been a while and, and you've done incredible things since then. The first question is, let's just start with hearing about your path you took to get to your position right now, being an authority in the field. At what point did you know the field of, of sexology and working with people and their relationships was what you wanted to do? Certainly. So it was a, a dark, gloomy day when I was going through the uh, TV, going through all the satellite channels as 12 years old and found the channel the 700s <laughs> and selected it. And there was this gorgeous woman who had these very large voluptuous breasts, cute little white shirt, little perky nipple sticking through. And I went, oh my gosh, I can't wait to hit puberty. And it was kind of a failure. So <laughs> since that point, I became, I was so fascinated in human connection and sex and relationships. And it definitely has developed since I've been 12 years old. But I always found myself just really supporting people and talking to people about their connections to one another. I was so fascinated with flirtation and you know, those like dances we went to when we were like super young and everyone was grinding, you know, that get low song. Yeah. That get low song and you know, window walls, all the things. And it was just so fascinating to me. I found myself kind of watching people instead of like actually doing it. And my guy friend at the time was very like, just focus on me. And I'm like, but look at the room. So there was this grade 12 anthropology sociology psychology class and it was about two days before university applications were due and it came around talking about relationships and the study of people and my per my teacher at that time looked at me and went this is you like psychology this is you and I thought I was doing kinesiology for the longest time I was an athlete through high school and even through university and totally did a 180 and went and did psychology. And since then, I gained my honors research specialist degree in psychology with minors in women's and gender studies and anthropology. My research specialization was social psychology and close relationships. I then went on to gain an honors graduate certificate in victimology to understand the physiological, psychological, emotional impacts on primary victimization, secondary victimization, so friends and family, and then tertiary victimization. So how trauma impacts communities. So we think of the Humboldt bus tragedy, we think of 9-11 and how that impacts people. And then I went and got my master's in cultural analysis and social theory. People there were studying movie theaters, they were studying Foucault, Marxism, and I'm like, cool, I wanna study porn. And <laughs> the class was like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, like I want to study the consumption of online erotic imagery. I want to look at trends, what people are, are researching. And uh, yeah, so went and got that master's, spoken in five different countries about my work. And then now I'm doing my PhD in California. I'm actually still up in uh, Ontario, but everything's virtual right now. So studying uh, my PhD in human sexuality. So 
super exciting. Oh. Um, but, you know, all throughout high school, lots of guys in particular would come and talk to me, usually about their penis, um, just having <laughs> questions about, you know, am I normal? How does sex work? How do relationships work? How do I get a girlfriend? What if I don't want a girlfriend? And so I've always kind of been that person. And I uh, just kind of took that up. And I was like, you know what? I can do this as, as a business. And I enjoy it. And so that was happening in high school. You were, you were already getting approached with questions like very sexual nature and personal nature like at that time too and you, and you were more than oh, happy yeah. to help out oh more than happy more ways than one uh, yeah. I really just loved talking to people about the connections to themselves connections to their partner partners I was just excited about what was happening with my body and why things were feeling so good and, and not yeah. feeling good and where that was coming from and you know, uh, women are also asking me questions about their vulva and vaginas and how to have good sex. And uh, yeah, this was definitely stuff that was happening in, in high school. And it was just kind of my calling. And so you and so you mentioned that you've sort of made this into your business. So so what are some of the things that you do for your business now? Like, what are some of the services that you have where you're talking about these sorts of things with people you're you didn't go to high school with and people that, you know, are seeking this kind of help? Like, what is it that you do? Yeah, so I'm an international relationship coach. So I uh, work with individuals and people in relationships to help enhance their intimate connections. So I do have my coaching services where I'm literally that of a coach. I'm not actually in there, you know, doing the practices and dribbling the ball and doing the thing, um, different ball dribbling. I am literally on the side taking people through techniques, whether it's with themselves or with other people through through coaching. And so there's also the emotional side of it too. I have a lot of survivors of sexual trauma that come and talk to me about navigating intimacy after an assault. And then I also have my, my workshops and my uh, webinars and conferences that I speak at as well. And have you noticed much of a difference between the questions that you were getting asked in high school and some of the, and some of the questions and help that you're being asked now? Because I, I always wondered about that. High school is a time of discovery. We knew absolutely nothing, but I, I feel at the same time, so a lot of people don't know anything even decades into their life. Yeah, I feel like that curiosity is something that really carried over that foundation of what's going on with my body, what feels good, and how can I explore this? What language can I use to like, oh, there, there's a name for that. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I like feet, there's a name for that. Um, there's a community for that. And so, you know, I think as, as human beings, one of our baseline drives that we have in life is connection, where that's connection to other people, connection to, to animals, connections to community. And so, you know, whether that's intimate connection or friendly connection, that connection is always there. And so there's always been this, this curiosity to find out um, more about our bodies, especially from men. I feel like um, women and not to play on the binary and I feel like non-binary folks and uh, trans folks as well are also very confused, but I feel like women in particular have the social privilege to be able to explore sex and intimacy in a very open and fluid way and not have their orientation, their sense of being questioned. But if you're a man and you're intimate with another man, just for, for fun, just to try things out, you know, let's be honest, like just to try things out, all of a sudden your sexual orientation is being questioned by your peers, your ability to be a true man, to be, you know, man up and stuff like that. All of a sudden that's put into question. And so I feel like with a lot of guys in particular, there's a lot of insecurity around the connections to themselves, even though 
they're meant to be sexually dominant. What happens if you want to be sexually submissive as a man? Do you think that also applies to this? I don't know if you want, we want to call it like toxic, but the, like the toxic expectations of guys as they grow up of, of you know, having to sleep with as many people as possible, or the person who has one partner from high school till now seen as like missing out, for example, like, is that connected to it? Totally. Yeah. I think, you know, even as young as when we're working with young boys and we tell them, don't cry like a girl, don't be like a girl, you know, man up. I think that just lays this kind of understanding of toxic masculinity of that there is this expectation to be a certain type of person and it's it sucks when your father passes away and you can't cry because you're so worried about other people's judgments of you and I think like it sex is not just something that operates within a vacuum it's not just one little aspect of our lives. It's connected to our entire sense of being, right? So, you know, how we interact with other people, how our job performance, um, like how sex impacts our job performance, it impacts our health, our mental health, our emotional health. So really it's all connected, our sense of selves. And when we feel as if there's a standard of behavior, like what we see in porn of what sex ought to be, it can feel really devaluing to be like, that's not what I like to do, but yet this is what's expected of me. Yeah, for sure. And, and so, you know, I guess you've sort of learned that over the course of your, of your work, talking to all sorts of people. And then we just kind of focused on, you know, the male experience there, but have there ever been any other perspectives or I don't know, maybe the other words, just like a cool thing that you learned from someone you've worked with or someone that you've talked to that maybe has like surprised you or like, either confirmed a belief that you had or, or even something that you just found really cool. You're like, Oh, I've never, I never like thought of that or never saw it that way. Like, like what's something that you've learned from someone you've worked with and, and you've thought, you know, any one of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, in my current study for my PhD, I'm in a program about problems and professional issues and the topic of pedophilia came up and that's when you're just immediately like, what the heck? Like, no, that's bad. We don't do that. You don't do that. Obviously childhood sexual abuse is terrible, but if you're someone, an adult in particular, that's struggling with that, how do you get help? And in our current culture in North America, you can't get help for that because people have a duty to report. So what do you gotta do? You gotta fly over to Germany to the centers over there that are gonna help you. Mm -hmm. And the fascinating thing with pedophilia is that how can we, we can't really tell rather when it starts. Is it something that's biologically innate or is it something that is socially implied onto us? Because if you're a young person and you like young people, that's not pedophilia because you're a young person and you like young people and we talk about age of consent but as you grow older then what is this expectation and how can we how can we manage that so it's just like it creates a lot of big questions in my mind about support that we need to provide but also like holding people accountable for harming children (laughs) yeah for sure I couldn't imagine like how I would react if someone started to open up to me about maybe something like that and you're right society does it's stigmatized. And obviously, like, I think in a way that's justified, because you're right, it's a completely, uh, but Paul, it's not even I don't even I think I, I think like pedophilia is, is at one end of the spectrum, you know, extreme, yeah. but I would say that in society, North American society, at least, 
there's kind of a stigma about t- talking about like sex in general. Right, right, yeah. No, and and fair. and Alicia, that's probably exactly why you were in such high demand in high school and to this very day, right? Because people are looking for that outlet. Sorry, the healthy living curriculum that we received, so sex ed that we received was from 1998. <laughs> so like, you know, we're in the 2000s and we have our phones and stuff. That curriculum is from 1998. It wasn't until 2015 where that was like revamped. Yeah. So like we're still living in the education we received was like nothing with online stuff. So teachers were kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, so did you go to a public or Catholic school? I went to public. Okay. So you had a much different experience than I did in a Catholic high school. Our sex ed was, I mean, if it wasn't non-existent, it might as well have been right. And yeah. a funny story about that, you know, they just, it might've been the same in public school, but they just get uh, like the gym teachers during a health unit to, to teach sex ed. Right. And so I'll never forget this. So it might've been grade 10 or 11. And we had a great gym teacher. He was a really good guy, but he didn't want to be teaching this stuff. Right. And so the extent of our sex ed was him telling us a story about how he knew there was a teenage couple at a school that he worked at 20 years ago where they, they had a teen pregnancy and the, the guy killed himself over it. And that was, he told us that story. He was like, don't have sex because this was something that happened. That was really, really bad to someone I know. And that's why you don't want to do that. And uh, as a 15 or 16 year old, I'm like, okay, that's pretty fucked up. Like that you would share that with us and like, think that's the extent of the education. But then you get old and you realize, oh my God, it's even worse than what you, what your gut reaction was at the time. Right. Because it's just such a disservice to, to young people and, and young adults, you know, the hormones are raging at that age. Right. So you need, you need education to make people's lives, sexual lives, a little more healthy and fulfilling going forward. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On, on that, Alicia, I'm not sure if you've seen the statistics, but it made some news. It's been making news. I feel like every year, but it just came out a few weeks ago, the massive decline in young people, I would say like high schoolers to university students uh, having sex compared to generations of old. What explains that? Like, do you have any insights on, on why that might be? Yeah. And so I think that particular study that you're referring to is actually came out in 2020, but I feel like it's, it's, there's always something like every year. And so what they did, they looked at a GSS. So a general survey, um, a general statistical survey about general stuff and, and sexual activity was something that was part of that survey. And so actually I want to ask you guys, when I say the word sexual activity, what, how do you define that? Uh, anything to do with your private parts? <laughs> <laughs> now I sound like I'm from Catholic school. Yeah. You definitely went to Catholic school, didn't you? No, I would say sexual activity is anything that you would consider like related to like a sexual drive, like a, a, a flirting, texting, sexting, uh, the actual act of sex, right? Anything to do with that. Okay. Yeah. Chris, you got any, you got any examples of what you'd describe as sexual activity? Yeah, Paul, definitely. You're, you're right on like the sex thing, but I don't know if like thoughts would, would, I think it needs to be like a little bit more tangible and, but it could be like on your own. It doesn't have to be with, with, with someone else. There you so, go. There you go. Yeah. Sexual activity. No. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I guess, you know what though, would, would like watching porn be a sexual activity? I guess so. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Would. I, so I feel like I'm, activity. I feel like it's a test. <laughs> <laughs> so sexual activity in this particular survey was not actually defined. And even in the criminal code of Canada, sexual activity is, is, kind of vague so it's like any activity that is deemed sexual that's what the the definition of sexual activity is in canada when we're looking at age of consent 
And so, yeah, you're right that it, sexual inactivity has been decreasing throughout the years. And they found actually through that survey that one in three men had had no sexual activity in that year. Now, that's not to say that people aren't as happy. When they look at happiness scales, it's actually pretty similar for people who are engaging in intimate sexual connections versus people who are not. And so, you know, some issues that you can kind of foresee when it's just a big general study like that is, you know, self-report bias and how people are reporting, how people are defining sexual activity. You know, are they amping themselves up? Was there these social expectations to respond a certain way? Where were these surveys done? Were they done in a safe enclosed environment with a statistician right there, making sure that there was no external forces? But really, and that's kind of the million dollar question, right, is narrowing down all these external variables to figure out, you know, what is causing this, this increase in sexual, in, or sorry, this decrease rather in sexual activity or, um, or sexual inactivity, right? And so this can be from such a variety of things. And we briefly talked about the healthy living curriculum and sex ed in Canada and how that has been uh, shaping and shifting um, and that there's been more uh, inclusion in language, understanding about the online aspects of, of, uh, of sex, like sexting and pornography use, and are those conversations happening? We can also look to social media and the increase in access to information. Now, we can have a whole conversation about the silencing of queer bodies, of sex workers, about people like myself uh, talking about healthy living and the sex ed curriculum and the many posts I've had taken down on Facebook because of that. Uh, could it be because uh, we're living with our parents longer and uh, you know, not being able to get out of the house. So Chris and I can attest to that. <laughs> we're not, you know, we're typically not bringing people home to our mommy and daddy's place after the bar. So, uh, you know, pre-COVID life. Uh, is it uh, our access to peers and how we're getting that information? Um, is it being able to access porn online, even though the age at which people are first accessing porn hasn't really changed since the 70s? We're getting our hands on it somehow, whether it's magazines, movies, or the you know online and so there's really a whole kind of variety of, of different different variables that can really play into people waiting longer to engage in sexual activity and what's really fascinating in Canada in particular is that we don't really use condoms that much compared to the United States mm. uh, we actually on average about our our form of birth control um, I think it was the last data I saw was like 36 percent of the time people are using condoms it's actually the hormonal birth control, the pills for, for vulva possessing individuals, uh, that's actually used the most, most of the time, which is really fascinating. The United States, it's kind of like inverse. Oh. And so, you know, we can talk about healthcare and stuff like that too. But yeah, so it can really be like a lot of different um, understandings. It could even be like how we understand relationships nowadays and like, you know, the, the lack of expectation to have sex to show that your relationship is thriving. Um, we could be connecting with people in, in a lot different, in many different ways. And it's going to be really fascinating to look at, you know, the impacts of COVID with that, right? And not being able to, you know, go over to your friend's house after school and play video games and not being able to go to the mall after, <laughs> right? So um, it's going to be, it's going to be really fascinating to see how COVID plays into uh, people's sex lives. Yeah, we I, know think it is, but. I think a lot of people are going to want to uh, scrub out 2020 from, from the stats. <laughs> oh yeah. Seasonally adjusted. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. So you're not saying you're skeptical of the numbers, though, are you? I think that people are putting more critical thought into their sexual lives compared to the past. 
so you mentioned a, a, a statistic there about porn and and people watching porn and, and did you say that it hasn't really the numbers haven't changed in the amount of people watching porn since the 70s Is no age, age of first access okay so that's been around 11 years of age 11 to 13 in canada and the united states is actually quite comparable as well and that's information that we have dating all the way back to the 70s. The issue with a lot of that early information that is that it actually came um, more from religious uh, folks, uh, particularly within like Christian religious areas, uh, doing that kind of seeking information. We look at the end of the golden era of pornography and the anti-pornography movement starting in that realm and uh, more radical feminist movement connecting with the uh, Christian churches to ban pornography and stop it all. But yeah, that average age of first access to porn hasn't changed really since the 70s like i guess there's a big difference though between someone in the 70s seeing like a playboy magazine and some kid now going on a website and seeing a 30 person gangbang <laughs> yeah oh definitely you know i think about the golden era of pornography which is around the late 1960s to uh mid 1980s and rip due to the vcr and people privatizing it and it taken to home so you could go to movie theaters and watch porn you would get all these pamphlets to your house it, porn was very accessible uh during that time and that's why they kind of kind of call it the golden era is more the commercialization of porn but yeah you know to look at the imagery um it's really kind of it's, it's definitely become a lot more regimented and a lot more kind of violent in, in, in manner. Now, violent is kind of its own subjective term. There can be stats about violence against women in porn that range from 21% to 88%, but the 88% defined violence as like the O face on a woman. So if the woman had the O face, like the orgasm face, um, if there was more than two people involved, so threesomes were defined as violence against women, any aspect of BDSM, fetish, yeah. any kind of kinky, non-vanilla stuff, like, whoop, that's violence. Um, of course, any slapping or spanking. And so, you know, those can be really fun, uh, you know, depending on the person. Those can be really fun and sexual ways to engage in intimate connections with people. Um, but that's deemed as violence in, in that particular study. So, yeah. <laughs> I think the Pope commissioned that study about the, the 88%. That's... <laughs> yeah, I wonder. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's some porn addiction therapists, uh, especially in my community that really harp on that number and, um, and, and kind of use that to, to commercialize like, ooh, uh, sex addiction, ooh, porn addiction, right. uh, ruining lives. And we actually have science that shows otherwise, which is why it's not a diagnostic term yet. You can't be diagnosed with sex addiction. Interesting. Yeah. So the, you know, the statistics are going to be used to demonize and and I just prove whatever side wants they want to prove right so it's sort of related to porn but you know I as a, I'm a male so my only experience consuming porn is <laughs> as a male I don't know how women really consume porn so it, what are the differences between how men and women consume porn like can you can you generalize that can you say like men typically are looking for like this uh, these sorts of things when uh, looking at pornography or they're going to these sources and is it very different from what women do when they're consuming porn or is it is it similar like I, I have no idea I'm genuinely curious yeah um so it, I don't know do you guys know about the porn hub, porn hub year-end reviews that come out there wasn't one 
Yeah, <laughs> Chris is nodding his head. Like, yes, I do this for research. Yes, I go on to board. <laughs> no, they're, they're hilarious. It's like the, the the most religious locations have what would be seen as like the kinkiest, craziest shit. So I always find that ironic. But sorry, it's go like on. Spotify Wrapped. I it's like Spotify Wrapped. I don't think I'd want to see the statistics uh, for me on that <laughs> one. <laughs> Are you listening to porn on Spotify? No, no. It's like, no. I'm just saying like the way Spotify wrapped will tell you like, these are the number of uh, minutes you listen to music. This is what you watched. If, if Pornhub did the same thing, I'm not sure I'd be proud of my numbers. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, like uh, I think that, you know, when it comes to talking about pornography and if it's like a negative thing, it certainly like can be right. But I think a lot of that is really pushed by self-diagnoses and also pushed by kind of moralistic standards of behavior. I watch porn every single day. I have yet to sexually assault someone, to rape someone, to traffic someone, to exploit Uh someone. So, you know, what am I an anomaly? Like, I like to think I'm special. And a lot of people tell me I am, but I don't think I'm that special, right? And when we have 115 million people in 2019 going on to Pornhub, which is up 10 million from 2018 and, uh, or sorry, 15 million from 2018 and 10 million from 2017, this is millions and millions of people accessing this material. Um, Do we have a direct correlation as to watching porn makes you more violent? Uh, Actually, we have some research that would indicate otherwise. So uh, there's been some research that came out uh, looking at kind of porn use and people's perceptions of porn users and it being hate towards women and that it's doing all this negative stuff with our with our minds. And what they actually found is that people who are consuming porn, they actually had more egalitarian attitudes towards uh, women in positions of power, women working outside the home, um, and abortion compared to those who don't use porn. And there was no difference in understanding or no difference in attitudes towards traditional family or their identification as a feminist. And what's really fascinating is that male users of pornography actually rated higher identifications of a feminist and higher acceptance toward abortions as male users of pornography versus female users of pornography. And so I can't really remember the stats off the top of my head in terms of the differences between female and male pornography use. But what I can say is that women consume more gay pornography than men do, which is really fascinating. A lot of women like to uh, watch the connection. They like to watch the vulnerability. They like to watch men experience pleasure in, in different ways. Or maybe they're just sadistic and like to watch men get fucked up the ass the same way their husband expects them to. It yeah. could be that too. So. But you often hear about how it gives young, uh, young people and young men specifically a unrealistic view of, of what sex could or should be. Is there something to be said on that? Or do you think it's actually just a part of a, a healthy learning and discovery phase? Yeah. And so there's been some really interesting research that came out of the UK in 2017, and they found that 56% of boys and 40% of girls before the age of 16 actually was watching some form of pornography. In my day job working at a local sexual assault center, I was speaking to a group of grade seven boys, and I actually had a grade seven boy mention a specific porn star as someone they looked up to. 
So they're consuming this stuff and they actually know the names apparently of, of particular people. Um, boys, 60% of the time are more likely to continue seeking it out, whereas girls are roughly 25% of the time. Boys actually report a more positive use of pornography or positive view of pornography. And what's really fascinating, and this is kind of where I end up taking my discussions around pornography and youth use, is that 53% of boys and 39% of girls think that pornography is real. And it makes sense, right? They're real people. They're, they're not Spider-Man. Yeah, sometimes they are, but they're not Spider-Man. They don't have all these prosthetics. It's, it's, these are real people having, there's no green screen. They're having sex. Like, how can you fake that? And I've totally thought that way too. Like, how can you fake this? This is, this is two people right here, right? And so what we're not teaching youth is about consent. We're not teaching them about the contracts. We're not teaching them that it's not real, that it is in fact a performance. It's an act. There's behind the scenes things that are happening. You know, that's not sperm. There's lotion that's used and there's lube and there's discussions about what's okay and what's not okay. And so what's really interesting is that when we look at how youth are feeling um, when they're watching pornography for the first time, curiosity is reported 41% of the time, shocked 27 and confused 24% of the time. And what's really fascinating is that with ongoing use, the shocked and confused actually dramatically decreases by like 20% each, but curiosity actually remains quite consistent. And so what we found is that it's very difficult to study youth and porn for obvious ethical reasons. You know, it's really hard to get that by ethics to be like, yeah, I want to talk to youth about porn and Riley Reed. You know, it's, they're going to be like, no. But in 1996, uh, we, uh, there was some research that actually came out around this, looking at porn literacy. And so what literacy is, is essentially understanding that it's a performance, that it's not real, that, you know, they're actors, right? And what they found is that when they had pre and debriefings before and after watching sexually explicit material, the youth had less perceived realism of events, AKA they knew it wasn't real, but also they held less rape myth supported beliefs. So we wanna talk about combating sexual violence and sex trafficking of youth. We need to teach them about the material that they're inevitably going to see and understand that there is consent that is happening behind the scenes and you don't see it here. So what happens in your real life is going to be very different than what you see in this quote unquote action Hollywood movie. Wow, we need you to design not just Ontario's but the global sex ed, <laughs> jeez. Wouldn't that be great? You know, in the United States, they have some, like, there's so many, um, I, I forget the exact amount of states where the information doesn't have to be medically accurate. And so you can just teach abstinence only education. And there's been science that shows that doesn't work. Um, I think, you know, it's important to give people the tools to be able to walk away from the house if they don't want to build it. I would much rather them have those tools to be able to build the house if they choose to, or to walk away from it. Very well said. Good. That's all really fascinating about, you know, research into porn and, and how it's, you know, consumed differently and what the effects are. That's, that's all really great to, to learn and know and couldn't agree more. Like I think the adults in the room should provide education and context so that these things can be consumed in a healthy manner and positively. Right. But I take it from all of that research and everything you just said that porn consumption isn't really a barrier to someone having like a better, more fulfilled sexual life. 
what do you find is uh, the number one barrier then to someone achieving a better, more fulfilling sexual life? I think it's the lack of education that people are receiving about their bodies and the different ways in which they can experience pleasure. 12% of the population can reach orgasm through nipple stimulation. I can tell you in high school, I was not doing that. I was wanting it, but I was not doing that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until grade 12 on this GSA, Gay Straight Alliance trip, that I started to learn about impact play and started to learn about more kinkier forms of connection. And that these kinky forms of connection don't necessarily have to involve sex. They can be alternative forms of, of pleasure, you know, the hot and cold, the temperature of uh, you're getting into blood play and scat play and, you know, all feet, foot fetish and all these things. And I think that there's a real lack of understanding and ability to really understand our bodies and how we can explore those in a consensual and healthy way. Well said. Yeah, yeah this is, this is, a, <laughs> this is a great learning lesson. I hope we could have you on again. But one last question. I'm super interested in the, if we want to take it way back to the start when we were talking about toxic masculinity or just masculinity in general. So this is purely anecdotal and not like just, not just anecdotal myself, but, you know, reading on Twitter, talking to friends, but in, in North America, I, I've heard women say that they find, or they, they would like it if, if men were more forthcoming. And, and, and say like, hey, like I, at a bar or something, right? Or just, just be more upfront with their intentions. And, but then at the other, on the other end, guys will say, well, you know, the environment's kind of like supercharged with the recent like Me Too and, and everything that's, that's come from, from that point on, which is great in, in highlighting the abuses that were allowed to go on before. But now there's like a little bit more sensitivity of like, oh shit, I don't want, I don't want to come across as predatory, even though they're not at all. And when, when I was in Europe for a year, it was like completely turned around. Like girls would approach you if they're interested. So it was like a completely different culture. Now you've, you've been around the world. You've, you've spoken around the world. I'd ask like, is there a problem with the culture in North America of people not being upfront and being a little bit uh, reserved compared to other places? And if so, how would you say we could navigate that? It's such a good question. In my day job, I actually coordinate and supervise a men's allyship group uh, surrounding sexual and gender-based violence. And these questions come up a lot about where is this line? And it's thinking more after the Me Too movement about sexual violence. And I think a lot of it comes down to people thinking about not only their intentions, but the impacts, right? And having more trauma-informed approaches to, to how they approach people. I don't know if you folks saw the dress study that happened. It was uh, put on by a ginger ale company, the one that begins with S, I can't pronounce it. And uh, they put a bunch of different sensory receptors on the dress. And these women wore the dress and they went into a nightclub in Brazil. And these women were touched. I can't remember the exact numbers, but you can look it up just excessively. And so just to think about, you know, that may be, you may be just simply getting someone's attention by tapping them on the shoulder or putting your arm around their waist. And we see that happen. I experience it all the time, especially uh, back in uh, good old university days at, oh, what was it called? The turret? Yeah, the turret, the turret. And men would put their hands like on my waist to like get by me. And I'm like, you're not doing that to other dudes. Like, you don't need to, you don't need to do that. Like, stop. I'm just here to like rock out and have a good time. And so I think the scripts around sexual communication is something that people are really starting to think about. Like, I don't think 
that I think that people really need to think more deeply about the impacts of their actions and how, yeah, you may just be wanting to slip by someone, but that's the hundredth time that they're touched that night, right? And so what I think the Me Too movement has, has done, and there are certainly a lot of shortcomings with the Me Too movement and about who is represented within that Me Too movement. And we see that even with feminism and the historical relevance of feminism, um, looking all the way back to the first wave. And you know, it was all about the suffrage movement and getting the right to vote, but who actually got the right to vote? It was upper-class white and black women. In Canada, Asian women didn't gain the right to vote until the 1950s, and indigenous women didn't gain the right to vote to the 1970s. So you know, whose suffrage movement was that really for? And the same thing within the Me Too movement. Um, this was really uh, kind of pushed by a lot of white women in these positions of, uh, of class, being able to access these supports and resources. But you know what got left behind was black women, indigenous women, uh, women with disabilities, sex workers, men, non-binary, trans folk. There's already so many barriers for men to come forward and to talk about sexual violence as something that has happened to them. And you know the Me Too movement certainly kind of you know, created a little avenue, but it certainly wasn't large enough. And so to just think about the sexual scripts in North American culture versus European culture, it's not really something that I can totally like give like a concrete answer to that like this is how it is. But I think that there is certainly an importance to understanding what intimacy and connection really means for an individual and what that then means to the connections that they're having with their partner, partners, or other people. Interesting. I feel like we could have a conversation just on that topic, but you, you definitely provide some great insights. Well, Alicia, thank you for, for joining us. Where could, if any listeners are, are interested in your services or finding out more, where can they find you? Certainly. You can head on over to my website, inspireintimacy.com. That is where you can get connected to my services and all my social medias. And you have a great YouTube channel too. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I have YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, but honestly, just with the, the climate and the work that I do, I get a, a lot of strikes against me. On Facebook, I got a strike for posting about someone who was masturbating every day to see how it impacted her life. <laughs> I got another strike about uh, why we need to be inclusive about queer women in our sex ed. And so that was no go. Yeah, it's it fast. Social media is really fascinating. And it's a really uh, interesting thing to navigate. So yeah, my, well, my YouTube well, and everything is on my website. Awesome. <laughs> we'll provide links for everything for sure. So Alicia, thank you so much. Like what you said at the beginning, we wanted you on the generalist from day one. And we're, we're super happy to have you on. And, and this has been a great conversation. So, so thank you so much. Amazing. It was my pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and learned a lot from Alicia. She really is incredible and her passion and knowledge will continue helping a lot of people. And we can't wait to have her on again to dive deeper into certain subjects. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And as always, if you and anyone you know has something to say or write, head to Eclectish and contribute. See you next episode.